stay bout it, I'm not pouting Break through walls and climb it mountains If you want it, scream it loud and show this world what they've been G'day listeners, welcome to the Braintainment Podcast. This show is an interesting mix between pop culture and personal development with a very wide range of guests that come on the show for a chat from the sports space, philosophy, health and fitness, entertainment and everything in between. The idea is to entertain or to educate you guys and hopefully sometimes both, either through just myself or with the guests that come on the show as we explore different ideas and concepts and have some really interesting conversations. The mission with the Brain Tamen podcast is to raise a million dollars, and that all starts with uh, building an audience and a platform. So thank you for tuning in. Our goal is to raise a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and family, and be sure to subscribe. With that said, strap in and enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Brain Tainment Podcast. Uh, I'm joined today, and I'm really fortunate to be joined by this person, and that is Graham Cowan, author, speaker. Um, he's an important thought leader in the space of mental health. He actually helped start Are You OK Day, which we'll, we'll unpack a bit throughout this conversation. Does a lot of work in corporate culture, uh, helping us manage our mood and reducing work-related fatigue. Graham spent the last 10 years, probably more now, helping people build resilience and improving their mood and their performance as a byproduct, following his own rock bottom burnout, which I'm sure we'll learn about today. And it's always interesting being able to pick apart people's stories and see where um, their journey, I guess, was catalyzed. I mentioned Graham helped uh, help start and is now a board director of Are You OK, which has become absolutely massive here in Australia, of course, really important campaign around uh, mental health, which we talk a lot about on this program. He's the author of five books, if I'm not mistaken, uh, including the internationally acclaimed Back from the Brink, which is a really interesting read. Um, it has a testimonial from the former UK Prime Minister, Tony Blair, which I thought was really cool. Uh, as a board director of uh, Are You OK? He's watched this simple idea lead to substantial change. He loves being a professional speaker because sharing ideas can lead to conversations and conversations uh, can lead to action and change, which I absolutely love that idea and can really rally behind. He delivers presentations, workshops, and online programs that help teams to outperform and outlast, encouraging team care, reducing fatigue, which is so massive. I'm um, getting a lot of airtime right now, which is, which is fantastic, and helping them all grow together. He's worked with a whole host of companies, just to name a few. He's worked with a lot of the big banks like NAB and CBA. He's worked with Allianz, Macquarie, a whole host more. So Graham's a very well-versed authority to talk on some of the, the ideas that we'll unpack today. So... With that said, welcome, Graham. Thanks, Liam. Lovely to join you. Mate, where I want to start, uh, and I've got a lot to get through in the short time we have together, um, I want to pick your brain as much as we can. But where I want to start is this idea, and I've heard you talk about this a lot, of if we master our mood, we master our life. And, you know, it's a really nice bite-sized quotable, um, but it carries a lot of weight and there's a lot of value once we start to unpack, um, I guess, the impact that has. So could, could we maybe start by getting your thoughts around the impact of being able to master our mood and perhaps before we look at some best practices, what gets in the way of, of us doing that? Yeah, Liam, I, I went through my own real struggles. Like I had a really, I've had several really severe bouts of depression. And uh, when I went to see my psychiatrist, it always asked me to rate my mood from 0 to 10. And what I, I asked him why, and he said, well, it helps me to understand where you are 
But also, I believe you should be able to learn how to manage your mood and maybe even to master it. And I was a bit peeved when he first said that because, and I said, well, haven't I got a clinical illness? And he said, you, you will always have a predisposition to depression. You've had five significant episodes, but I believe that you and everyone else should be able to learn how to manage their mood and maybe even to master it. And it really uh, set me, I guess, on a bit of a quest and uh, really look at this whole thing of our mood and how we manage it. And probably one of the most uh, significant books that I read into this was something called The How of Happiness. It was by mm-hmm. Professor Sonia Lievomirsky. And she identifies three things that impact our mood or what psychologists call positive effect. And the three things she looked at, over 400 peer-reviewed studies and found out that there were three things that um, contributed to our mood. The first was our genetics, and that contributes uh, 50%, uh, which is pretty significant, and we, and we can't really do too much about our genetics. Uh, the second uh, component was the events in our lives, and this was only 10%. And um, when I read into it, it was actually more about I would say more everyday events. And I would argue that, you know, the whole COVID crisis has been more than just a everyday type event, but nevertheless, it's it's reasonably small. And then she identified that 40% of our mood is contributed by what we call our intentional intentional activities, what we choose to do each day. And, uh, and so this, you know, really confirmed, I guess what my, my doctor talked about that, we, the things we choose to do each day do impact our mood and we have control over that, whereas at the moment there's lots of things outside our control. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've heard a lot of that research and it's a lot of what I talk about in this program and, and with conversations, you know, off air with friends and family is that idea, I guess, you know, the, the ongoing conversation around nature versus nurture. And I think it's, I think it's important to respect the fact that, yeah, there is, I guess, some um, nature element you know there is a, a sense of biology mm. and um, even if that is you know as you say or in that book 50 percent I feel like that remaining we'll say 40 percent of um, how we you know the lens we see things through it's so it leaves us so much opportunity we will never unpack it unpack it all in our lifetime anyway so it's still a lot it's still a lot to work with so I really like that idea that yeah we're respecting the fact that there are predispositions there are some small impact of environment and upbringing and things like that as well, of course, but then we still have a sense of agency to, you know, to start um, actually taking back control and, and redirecting our thought patterns and our, you know, our sense of well-being. So I guess the next question then becomes, how do you, how do we do that? I think a good place to start is to believe it's possible. And we see some of the research coming out, which is really, really cool and encouraging. Um, so what have you found Graham to be, I guess, some best practices to start, um, improving our mood uh, across all arenas of life? Yeah, I've found um, in my research, I've identified three real areas to focus on. And the three areas are vitality, intimacy, and prosperity. So vitality is our physical energy, our physical well-being. And so contributing to that is things like exercise, resting well, sleeping well, eating well. The second part is our intimacy. These are our relationships. And the longest well-being study ever done is something called the Harvard Grant Study, which has been following the same set of people for over 75 years. And what they've found from that is that those that have the longest life, 
the most affluent lives, the lowest levels of stress, are those that have caring and supportive relationships around us. So, um, you know, in terms of knowing the people that you should include in that group is really important. But, uh, you know, you have to invest in that. You can't just, you know, hope that if things go bad in three months, we'll all tap into this network. We have to work consistently at it to, to develop it. And the third element of uh, well-being or resilience is prosperity. And this is the sense of contribution we make through our work or, or even your program like this, Liam, where you're, you know, you're spreading a really positive message to the outside world. Some people get it through um, volunteering for a charity or sports or sports team or, or school sort of situations. So that those three things, vitality, intimacy, prosperity, form the acronym VIP. And uh, what I stress to people is you have to act like a VIP. And acting like a VIP is making sure that we top up each day a little bit in the vitality glass of water, the intimacy glass of water and the prosperity glass of water. Because if we don't, it's like it being outside in the sun and, uh, you know, it evaporates. And so we do nearly really need to top up each of those, uh, each of those three areas on a, on a regular basis. It's a really good, really good way to look at things and really simple too. Um, where do we, where do you think people will then get stuck? So you've now, you know, been in this space for a while now, and I've, I've seen you, uh, just content from you talking and your, your books, of course, and articles. Um, but it's easy. And I know I'm guilty of this. I'm sure people listening will be too. It's easy to sort of, to hear information and then digest it and understand it, but then it, we don't always execute. And I'd love to get your thoughts around where people fall short. Um, you know, perhaps on a, on a personal level, and then perhaps even on a societal level, um, what gets in the way of, of topping up those um, baskets, so to speak? Yeah, well, it's really about um, understanding how we rate in each of those glasses of well-being. And um, I've put together something called the self-care snapshot. And what it has is five questions under each of those three categories, each scored out of 10. And so you can very quickly identify what is your emptiest glass? What do you need to focus on more to make progress? And, and then I, I really recommend that you just choose one thing, one thing you'd like to focus on in the next 60 days. And it's not big changes. I think one of the keys of getting successful rituals in place and good results is choosing little things to do consistently each day. And as an example of that, of that, you might decide that you'd like to include, you know, 30 minutes of uh, a brisk walk or, or a jog every day. And the thing is, if we do it today or don't do it today, it really doesn't make any difference whatsoever. But if we resolve to do that 30 minutes, no matter what, on and strive to do it seven days a week, even if we miss out in a couple of days, well, we're suddenly doing it five days a week. And that can lead to really profound change. You know, if we are in a good place physically, it often then reflects in our emotional mood as well. So, but all the research shows about ways to um, have a successful new ritual is to do it regularly and consistently. And there's certainly ways that we can look at doing that as well. Yeah, I reckon that's a really important point, Graham. Again, just speaking from my own experience, I think it's easy to get to um, bite off more than you can chew, so to speak. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's no shortage of information out there at the moment, and um, which is amazing. 
Um, but then I suppose, you know, indecision can be the thief of execution sometimes. And that arises from just having this like paralysis of like, what, what do I do first? So I really like that message of focus on something and, and, and do it well until it's, I guess, habitual, um, you know, cause time is a variable for, for things to start, mm. you know, to see, I guess, noticeable improvement. Um, let's unpack your story a little bit more. You touched on it at the start there. Um, I think there's probably an opportunity for people to, you know, um, again, it's a, a bit of a quotable, but turn their mess into their message. And I, I think that's what you've done really well and why I wanted to connect with you. Um, was there a process that I guess helped you do that? Like what was that transition period for you to get into this space now where you're sharing really important ideas and conversations? Um, and I suppose what I'm really trying to get to the core of is how did you, or um, what's the process of trying to shake the identity um, that you have, whether it's in a state of depression, maybe people struggle with anxiety, they might just have low confidence. How do we shake that identity to start, you know, moving in the direction of um, a new version of ourselves? Yeah, it's um, with me, like I went through, it was a, you know, a five year episode of depression and I really seriously thought at times I would never get better. I just lost complete hope and that led to, you know, I guess some quite, um, you know, destructive, destructive activity really, including, including a suicide attempt. And I think the one thing for me was just deciding I was going to start walking every day. And I started walking, you know, probably about 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And, um, and my mood, you know, it, it certainly wasn't a straight line, but my mood started to improve. I then decided that I would reach out to family and friends that had come estranged from because I really isolated myself a lot when I was, mm. wasn't in a great place. I felt, uh, I guess, a sense of shame. And, but I started organising these, you know, short catch-ups, whether, you know, catch up for a coffee or a, a beer or whatever. And um, even though I didn't really look forward to them, but I found that after them I felt, you know, quite a bit better. And that was a really uh, important insight that, you know, having that regular contact with people that have your best interests at heart and, um, you know, your champions really, really helps. Mm. And then I noticed that my, you know, my mood was getting better. It had gone from maybe a, you know, a two out of 10 up to a, a five or six. And then I began the regular ritual of meditation. And I had tried to meditate when I was depressed, but I just found I couldn't do it, um, but because I'd lifted my mood a little bit, I found that I was able to do it. And that's become a really important um, ritual for me every day. You know, I actually, it's the first thing I do when I get up, which is usually around, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock. I meditate for, you know, 20 minutes to half an hour and then preferably do some activity, whether it's, uh, you know, walking in the bush near here or going to a gym um, and, I now have uh, what I call a, a VIP weekly planner, and that's I can actually show you what that looks like. What I have on my desk, and so you know it has. So when I find out where I'm empty, so under each of those areas, the vitality, intimacy, prosperity, on Sunday I work out in the coming week when I'm going to get top up each of those three areas, and and I find that just sort of um, just helps me, I guess relax in terms of knowing that I have got these things scheduled and yeah. it is that balance I do have in place. And uh, that's been, you know, quite helpful for me. 
I suppose as opposed to then leaving it to chance, it's like you're making an effort to put these things into your life, right? Well, you know, they're too important not to have in your life. And, um, you know, if you talk about some of the, you know, the old concepts of, um, you know, time management, you know, they say that, um, that uh, you know, you, you need to, the, the things that are really important to you uh, are what they call big rocks. And you need to put those big rocks into your calendar, into your diary in advance. Otherwise, you'll never fit them in. You know, it's, uh, I think the story goes something along, along the lines of this university professor lecturing and saying, okay, I put these big rocks into a, into a beaker and is it full? And everyone says, yes. So then he gets out gravel and sprinkles it all around. Is it full? Uh, and they say, yeah, it's simple now. Then he gets out sand and sprinkles it all through. And he then asks the class, you know, what is, what is the purpose of this metaphor? What is the purpose of this lesson? And, um, you know, the class sort of says, or a couple of people say, well, no matter how busy you are, you can always fit something else in. And he says, no, that's not the lesson at all. The lesson is, unless you put your, your big rocks in first, your big things, you'll never get them in. You know, if you put in the, the gravel and the sand, you'll never fit the big rocks in. And so starting a week with a plan of how you do the things that are important to your well-being and your productivity is really central to, um, you know, having a, an effective and, and happy and productive life. Yeah, definitely. I think it's too easy for, uh, particularly in today's, you know, busy world, to prioritise, you know, the... Um, the to-do list items, right? To schedule those things in first, which when you zoom out and sort of look at it dispassionately, it's kind of, it's not overly important most of the time, but um, mm. I know I'm certainly guilty of that anyway. It's just a, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? And I know people that are, you know, ambitious and driven by nature will relate to that a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, like, and again, speaking from my own experience, I think it's unfortunately too easy to then, fall into a place of burnout and then you know you try and push through that you end up riddled with anxiety and into states of depression which is a bit a process to kind of work your way out of as you would as you would well know um so mm -hmm. i've uh, and it's interesting hearing you talk about meditation i've had probably i don't know maybe 30 or so guests on the show now um and almost all of them I've spoken to, that conversation's come up and some of them have been more specifically in that space, but I've had sports people, business people, um, and that, that conversation around meditation's come up as a, as a practice. Um, mm. And I've tried to implement that and that's, that's been huge. It's, it's still a process, of course, as I'm sure you found, you, know, you get better like, like anything over time. But I really like as well, and this is another theme that's come up in conversations I've had is this idea of connection. And you were just talking to that point before. Do you think that's a not a lost art, but I guess almost a lost priority to some extent? I suppose we're seeing the the repercussions of the of that being removed a little bit with the COVID crisis. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think in you know in such a socially connected world on the internet that we're we're missing an opportunity to prioritize deeper connections, um, you know, in our calendars? Very much so, and. Um... You know, if you have real life friends, you know, the ones that you see physically and what have you, the more we have of those, um, the, the better our well-being is. But funnily enough, in, in social media, once you go up to above 150, the more you have um, doesn't necessarily mean an increase in well-being. In fact, the higher it gets, it can often be a, a lower level of well-being. And 
there are three key things, you know, about having really supportive and great um, catch-ups and with with friends. And the first is, you know, positivity. And you think, oh, that's a no-brainer. It has to be a positive experience for both people. Otherwise, why do it? Um, the second thing is consistency. You know, you, you can't just hope that this will get stronger and deeper by ignoring it. You know, you really have to catch up with people. And ideally, it is in person. There is a difference within person. Mm. But once you have the initial trust and respect, it can also be very much via, you know, Zoom or phone mm. or whatever. And then the third element critical to really strong, robust, caring relationships is vulnerability. So you can discuss, you know, problems that you have with that person. Like I have a, a really good friend, uh, Ted Dorasami, that I, you know, was, was uh, we both worked in mar as marketing managers in Johnson Johnson 25 years ago. But we still catch up twice a month and go for like a, a two-hour bushwalk. And, uh, you know, we have the physical activity, but we also can talk about anything, whether it's family or work or finances or, um, you know, just how we're going. And um, mm. that is a, it's a proven way. If you, have, if you have friends you can confide in, it's a proven way to protect yourself from mental illness and, and particularly depression. If you can confide in someone, mm. it makes a big difference. Yeah, I mean, I, I could not. I agree aggressively, and I think most people would if you just reflect on your own experience. You know, I look at conversations with friends, family, even just people like yourself. You know, I get off a call like this, and I've almost renewed my energy for the afternoon because um, mm. it's stimulating, and it's you know we're sharing important ideas and we're connecting to some extent. But of course, when you've got friends and family that you've been had in your life for a period of time, I look at it like exercise. It's it's almost it's never a bad idea even if sometimes you don't feel like starting that process you know getting putting the shoes on going for a run or the gym um or picking up the phone or for a call or going to the cafe for with you know to meet a friend it's you never regret it and no. i think when you know when you have that as like a foundational kind of understanding i suppose you know it makes it easier to start putting these things in place and doing them um was that for you graham was that part of the idea i guess the premise behind the are you okay campaign could you talk a bit about how that came about and um i guess what the i mean people obviously know the campaign but what's the kind of overarching um, purpose there yeah well i um you know i had a put out a number of books and it was back in march 2009 where i got approached by gavin larkin and um he'd heard of my books and and explain what he was trying to create with this Are You Okay Day. And I really just resonated straight away because I knew firsthand that, you know, my parents had played a really big role in me still being around, you know, not giving up. And, um, and so even though he just really asked me about being an ambassador, I just said, well, I want to do more than that. I really, you know, love to help you grow it. And I think the thing that really um, made it a, it was a really contributing factor was, you know, the logo and the tagline. So the tagline is a conversation could change a life. And we can all relate to that. You know, if Gavin and Tragic lost his father to suicide and if he'd come out with, well, let's have a, you know, suicide prevention day, it just wouldn't have resonated the way that it has because we all know that we've been supported by someone asking us, are we okay? 
And we also know that we, that we've helped others, other people by encouraging them and having a conversation. So it was just really a gut feel that, um, you know, this could work. But of course, it's really, you know, grown hugely beyond our wildest expectations. And I think it is very much, in fact, we don't even ask people to donate money. We ask them to give their time to reach out to other people. And um, people have really resonated with that. They really have. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of, um, and, and, and our funding comes from about three different areas, you know, from government support, from the merchandise and also our corporate partners. And also actually the fourth one is events. You know, when people do runs and that sort of thing, you can nominate a charity. And, and so that's been a way that it really has resonated. And then we've also done some specialist programs for different industries. So we've done one for the motor, motor trades industry, one for the railway industry, one for the law community. And um, we're continually just targeting or just tweaking the material to suit those environments. And I think because we have sought to evolve right from the start. And, and I think also we started always as a digital charity, you know, because we had no money or people or employees. So we just always, you know, we had our stuff on YouTube and Facebook and all of our resources were downloadable and uh, it just made it as easy as possible for people to engage in, um, engage in the message. Yeah. Well, it was a brilliant campaign and, um, you know, I can only imagine the, you know, the impact that it's had uh, on so many people, you know, either directly or indirectly, you know, through their friends and family. I, I guess what I'd like to, where I'd like to go next with while I've got the time with you is um, I feel like the, the stigma around mental illness is, is slowly shifting, which is great. Uh, there's still, still a ways to go, particularly in men. Um, that's a whole other conversation. But um, I think I feel like we're moving in the right direction, which is pleasing as a result of campaigns like, you know, what you've been able to put together. Um, I guess the, the next part of that process, I suppose, is um, like, where, where do you go to from there? So we encourage the conversations that people start to open up or potentially they may not, but at least being, um, at least trying to start the conversation is step one. I feel like there's then also, so that's a care factor is I guess how I would look at it. But then there's also, is there some sort of skill set or conversational ability you know, that is the next part that we need to, I don't know if train is the right word or, you know, give more awareness to because I'd, not everyone would be equipped to handle the weight of someone close to them if they're really struggling, right? Does that kind of make sense? Like, where do we go to from yeah. there? Yeah, well, it is about, um, you know, continually increasing to evolve and to increase the skills that people have because, Funnily enough, when we started, the two reasons why people didn't ask, are you okay, was that they didn't know how to start the conversation. And they were sort of, you know, frightened that the person might say, no, I'm not okay. I don't know what to do. And so from an are you okay perspective, we talk about, um, you know, four steps. And it's an acronym, ALEC, A-L-E-C. So the first one is to break the ice and then ask, ask, are you okay? You know, talk about what changes you've seen and ask, are you okay? I'm concerned because you're not getting, you know, your material in on time or your reports. Are you okay? And, and then L stands for listen without judgment. You know, just really ask open-ended questions because very rarely will people offer the real issue straight off. You, you know, you often find you have to sort of keep probing to understand where that, that is. 
And so the person, you know, you're really striving then to the person to feel understood. And then when you feel that they now feel understood, you then encourage action. So that's the E is to encourage action. And generally just one step, it could be to, you know, if you've got financial problems, it could be, well, maybe you should talk to your accountant. If it's a mental health problem, um, you know, maybe you should speak to, you know, the Beyond Blue helpline or Lifeline helpline um, and just encourage that sort of one step. Or it could be, you know, going to see your general practitioner, you know, it could be something along those lines. And in the workplace, you know, large workplaces tend to have something called an employee assistance program that you can call for free and, and, and access. I suspect that um, the, uh, the travel center uh, would have had that. Um, yeah. And, yeah. yeah, I actually, I, the, I, won't, uh, I won't digress too much, but um, a few years ago I had uh, my own mental health challenges. I've spoken about it openly on the, on the program and um, the company I was with at the time, I had access to that um, to that platform, I had, a, had a few sessions, which um, proved helpful, certainly put me in the right direction, which is great. Absolutely. Uh, and so, yes, and, and then the final, so it was A is for ask, L is for listen without judgment, E for encourage action, and C, the final thing is to check in. You know, if they say they're going to see a GP, just ask, oh, when are you going to do that? And then follow up a few days later and just see if they have taken action because when you're in a, a bad place, like I've been, you tend to feel, oh, I've tried everything, you know, but but just encouraging people to take little steps can make a big difference um, when it comes to mood and, and mental ill health. Mm, yeah, definitely. So, Graham, you do, a, you do a fair bit of work in the corporate space now too, right? Um, yeah. What are some of, like, well, to start with, what are some of the, the challenges that you see in the corporate world? Um, I know, I know I, where I want to go with this, I want to get to this idea of, of burnout and fatigue. Um, obviously, it's just, you know, fr from a well-being point of view, it's not ideal and there's a sense of responsibility with leadership, but also, you know, as a byproduct of that, productivity's down and, and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just what got you into the corporate space to start with, but then also what, um, what challenges do you see presented in some of the places you work? Yeah, well, I, I came from a, a corporate background. I worked with large companies like Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer and AT Carney. So that was my background before I had the really bad breakdown. And funny enough, about 10 years ago, when I started to talk about this in the workplace, everyone said, oh, there's no stress here. Everything's fine. No worries. Well, everything's good. But I think one of the really significant things over the last sort of, I would say the last four or five years is that the rate of change in workplaces has accelerated. There's also been lots of technology changes. And then, you know, to cap all that off, we then had this pandemic, which has really put the rate of change on steroids. It really has. Everyone's had to change just profoundly. And uh, if you don't take care of yourself, that rate of change can really rise stress and, and you know, rise risen stress on an ongoing basis can then mm. contribute to mental illness if you have that predisposition. So, you know, I think that's probably one of the positive elements that have come out of the, the COVID crisis. And the Black Dog Institute has done research of um, 6,000 people since COVID began, and they found that 78% reported a decline in mental health and 23%, almost one in four, a significant decline. 
And before any of this COVID began, the CSIRO had identified rising work stress and mental health issues as a, a mega risk for the next 20 years if organisations don't get this together. So, you know, I think there's been this quantitative um, understanding of the role when people aren't well mentally and, um, and then just the realisation that it's much easier to prevent it than to trying to help people once they're in a bad place. The closest thing to a, a silver bullet in a mentally healthy workplace is actually prevention and early detection. You know, preventing it in the first place is the best, but then followed, you know, catching someone early and asking, are you okay, can make a big difference. So then if, if I'm a leader in a big um, corporation or company or even just responsible for, you know, a community, what, how do I go about um, preventing these challenges, right? Like what are some of the culprits? Is it the, is it the time investment? Is it the demands? Is it the lack of encouraging vulnerability? Yeah, what are some of the culprits you see? Well, if I'm looking after a big team, I think in, in three areas. One is uh, self-care. So thinking about how we can encourage each person to, to live a good life, to live a, good, a healthy life. And the greatest predictor of team well-being is actually leader well-being. If a leader walks the talk on well-being and make it a, a priority for themselves, it flows on to other people. You know, there's research done about a leader that does walk the talk on well-being and it just flows onto the team. Not surprising when they see the leader lead by example and make that happen. So self-care is where it all starts. The second element is crew care. And so this is about building uh, caring and supporting people around us in our work life and also our home life. And there's three elements related to that. Connection, you know, are we connected with each other? Uh, safety, do we feel safe around each other? Can we try things, take risks, try and better serve things? Without, with, without fear, that if something doesn't work out, we won't be sacrificed. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a mindset of we support each other, we have each other's back. And then the third element is a shared future. You know, do we as a team share the future or share the role that we could play in the future? So those three things, you know, um, we connect, we're seeking a outcome of we belong. And, and it's a fundamental need of all humans to have a sense of belonging, being in a, a tribe or a crew. Mm. Next one is um, we feel safe and the outcome we want from that is that we feel supported, we have each other's back. And then, you know, do we share a future? The outcome we're seeking is that we co-create the future. So that's the, so I've talked about the self-care and the crew care. The third element is the red zone care, how we reach out to someone who we think will be stressed or anxious or depressed. And um, I've put together this, um, I guess a methodology to do that, and it's called I Care, and it just sort of builds, I guess, on the on the um, the Are You Okay framework that I talked about before. So the I Care, the I is for how we identify someone who's struggling, and that's generally about you know changes in behaviour or mood or circumstances. The C is for compassion, how we put ourselves in their shoes and ask, Are you okay? The A is for access experts, encouraging them to find a mental health savvy GP or to seek out a helpline or just take that one step. R is for revitalizing work. And 
we are actually better off being connected to our work colleagues to recover. You know, some people think, oh, well, someone's really stressed, they should take some time off. Well, it's often not the best thing. Often the best thing could be to reduce hours or reduce workload, but still to keep them connected to, with their work colleagues because that overwhelmingly has been shown to be really a critical component of, uh, of recovery. And then the final thing is E is for exercise and, uh, you know, just encouraging them to have a, you know, a 30 minute brisk walk each day and perhaps even offering if it's geographically possible um, and COVID possible to actually meet with them and to have, uh, you know, a walk together where you're sort of, uh, you know, killing two birds with the one stone. And um, so, yeah, so it's I for identify, C for compassion, A access F experts are revitalizing work and E for exercise. And, and there's posters for those things um, on my website, you know, grahamcowan.com.au. There's free posters you can access there to, um, uh, to, to just see a bit more flesh around each of those, um, each of those five elements. I really like that. We'll, we'll link it in the show notes um, below for sure. So I, that's really interesting, Graham, because I feel like the, a lot of the work that I've been diving into lately is, is um, a lot of like neuroscience stuff. Like I've become really fascinated with how the brain works and, you know, um, instincts, survival instincts, things of that nature. And essentially what I'm hearing there is um, everything that lines up with, I guess, um, what's important to be human, right? So you mentioned connection and it is just like, it is, it blows my mind. Some of the science coming out about the importance of connection and again, not to digress too much, but you know, we're talking off air about the work that I do now in the travel space and spent the last couple of years independently with my business. And I've noticed the, the lack of, um, you know, for all the pros to get for being, having, you know, freedom, I guess, to some extent, the lack of constant interaction with uh, colleagues and things of that nature is, is taxing. So the connection mm. and, and, and the human drive, it's not just an ethereal idea. Like we're literally driven to be a social creature. So that's really important. You know, exercise speaks for itself and just the endorphins and neurochemistry cocktail that that creates. Um, but I think the safety point is really interesting too. So, you know, like if you, if you start to look into that a bit further, I would imagine you'd realize, you know, if you're in a situation where you spend half of your life in the arguably in the workplace, right. And you don't feel safe. And it could even be on a subconscious level, you know, you're going to be uh, overactive, uh, overstimulating the, uh, the amygdala and the fear response in the brain. And I, it, the natural byproduct of that is going to lead to anxiety, you know, and then how you manage that anxiety could then lead to further trouble. So that's super powerful. Um, and then that sense of, I think you're alluding to a little bit there of having the team in on the mission, you know, I've been mm. in workplaces where I haven't felt that. And I've been in leadership mm. positions where I haven't executed that well enough for the team. And I think mm. that restricts the lack of purpose, which again, a lot, of, a lot of research coming out with this drive to, you know, to have a sense of direction and purpose. And, you know, if those things are missing, it's pretty easy to see. And I imagine you see it in some of the biggest, biggest companies in the, com in the country. You know, it's pretty easy to see how, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna, we're going to break down um, on some level. Mm. So I think providing that context is really important for leaders, obviously, but even for people listening or watching um, to realize, you know, whether, if they're spending half their waking hours in their workplace, do they have those ingredients? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, and things like, you know, there's a, a term called psychological safety, and it means that, you know, you can say things, you can make suggestions and know that it won't be ridiculed, you know, but it can very often psychological safety and team psychological safety 
is very fragile. You know, just take one leader and say, oh, it's a stupid idea or, oh, what a waste of time. I've already tried that. Just do this. And in psychologically safe teams, people speak approximately equally. It doesn't mean it's a uh, democracy, but it does mean that people feel included in their direction and in the decision-making. And a psychologically safe team is where there is strong trust and respect between each other, where people can feel vulnerable and make suggestions without... Um, you know, being ridiculed or that sort of thing. And um, the best organisations, you know, the likes of Google and IDEO, Navy SEALs, they really strive for those environments where, you know, people do feel included and, um, you know, are involved in shaping the future of the team and, and the organisation. And do those ideas then translate into just our friend circles outside of the, you know, the work environment, the people we spend time with, friends, family, do those same ideas of having psychological safety have the same impact? Yeah, 100%, 100%. You know, I said with, you know, the, those three things about consistency, positivity and um, vulnerability can be vulnerable. You're not going to be vulnerable if people, <laughs> you know, are dismissive or just say, you know, pull up your socks or yep. oh, there's nothing to be worried about. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, you're not going to be talking or confiding in someone like that if that's how they respond. Very true. Um, Graham, I've got two more for you and then I'll let you go. Um, and I mean, like I, I joked at the start, I feel like I could talk for you for a long period of time, just riffing on different ideas. But um, uh, have you noticed any differences, I guess more specifically differences in what some of the issues arising are between men and women? You know, I, the demographic of listeners and, and you know, viewers on this platform um, is a bit of a mix. Get some guys, get some girls. Um, have you noticed any noticeable differences, I guess, potentially on a societal level um, that can cause uh, mental health challenges or fatigue or stress um, between men and women? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, generally, and not just generally, but it's actually shown that women access help much easier than men, you know, so they have a much more regular relationship with their general practitioner, for, for example, they will see their, their GP much more regularly than men. And I think men also have been really socialised somewhat to be problem solvers. And so if we can't work it out ourselves, you know, we can view it as a bit of a failure, a bit of a, a self-failure. And this um, really leads to some very negative outcomes and and. One of the most important of that is, is uh, men account for 75% of suicides. And I think it's because they don't seek help early enough, because they, you know, feel that it's, uh, you know, it, it's shameful to say, I can't work it out myself. Um, that is not a healthy thing. And, and I do think that men have to look at different ways to improve this. And one way that that's been done is through, you know, an organisation like Men's Shed. It tends to be older men and often more retired men, but they get together to make stuff. And by being in the same room, they often then talk about what's been going on and what's been happening. But it's while they're concentrating on doing something else that it works really well. And I have, I've had for the last um, really 20 years, I've been in a investment group with, with 11 other guys. And we get together once a month at someone's house and you know it's talking about investing in shares and stuff but just as a byproduct you know we have this consistency of getting together and so you know a lot of camaraderie and and uh, has built up and 
just about every one of us has been through a crisis of one form or another um, over that 20 years, be it you know, financial difficulties or divorce or illness. Um, you know, so you know, I think we've all benefited by having that really strong um, ritual in place. And I also have a, a couple of weekly ones. See, like every um, Sunday morning, I meet two mates at a curl curl, which is a beach in northern Sydney. We meet there, we go for a, a jog down to Manly and back again and have breakfast every single Sunday, or you know, probably. You know, we go away on holidays and all that sort of stuff, but there's three of us, so there's usually two go every every single Sunday, which is a lovely thing to have, lovely ritual. And then, funnily enough, on Thursday morning, I meet another mate where we he just ha- happens to live close to where I live, and I live near the bush in Sydney, and we go on a bushwalk every every Thursday morning. So those rituals in place, I think, are just really, really good for uh, guys, and it helps to you know build that positivity the consistency and, and the vulnerability. You know, with each of those groups I've decided, particularly the, um, the Sunday morning and the, the Thursday morning one, you know, we can talk about anything and it's really, really healthy. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, I've definitely, particularly, um, you know, in a post-COVID world or at least when things ease up a little bit for Melbournians, um, I'm really yeah. excited above, you know, I want to play golf and tennis because I love those things. But a lot, a lot of that... Um, desire almost is to be able to connect with you know people in my life again so that makes a lot of sense Um, the last one for you I I guess I wanted to unpack a little bit was um, and talk a bit about it on this program this idea of like prioritizing you know conversations around self-care mental health and like and learning and going into this rabbit hole to unpack it um, so you have something to use right and so you can improve your life and then help others and um, move towards fulfillment is the game name of the game in my book anyway. Um, mm. How do you find the the balance, I guess, of not getting stuck in analysis paralysis? I suppose is what I'm asking. So the the balance of prioritizing self care, our mental health, um, but then not keeping a hundred percent of our focus on those things and allowing it to wander to you know exciting and fun and adventure and things of that nature. Is there, a, is there a, a balance we can get right? Yeah, well, I think um, when we do practice self-care, we're in a better mood and we're much better off to pursue our adventures and our holidays, <laughs> COVID aside, um, <laughs> because we did once have holidays and regular holidays and that sort of thing. But it is really deciding that that's one of your big rocks and doing those things is one of your big rocks. And, uh, you know, in... My, my website, if you go to grahamcowan.com.au forward slash self-care, that's where you'll find the VIP snapshot, you know, the self-care snapshot, which can help identify what might be your mood vampires, what might be the things we're not doing that would help with our um, resilience and robustness. And then at that same link, you'll also get the, the weekly planner, about how you actually do this, how you actually make it happen. And I use, I'll just show you the, the homepage of my um, phone. I have a, a little, this one here is called Streaks. And it's basically a way how we can put our rituals into practice. So if you look at mine, you know, have I had 30 minutes or 40 minutes exercise each day? Have I meditated for 20 minutes? Right. Have I right. just had two meals a day because I practice intermittent fasting? 
have I done something scary this week or this day, sorry? And each time I do that, you press it and it does this nice little interface where the circle goes around and, um, you know, you can see how you're doing. And, and the whole idea is to keep the streaks going. What was I that app called? Like, it's called Streaks. Streaks, streaks. okay. Streaks. And it costs about five bucks on, on either the um, the Apple or the Android store, store. But I find it's a great way to say, yep, I've done my meditation this morning. I've done my exercise this morning. I only had two meals today. Um, and I've done my one quick scary thing. So, you know, you just have that really top of mind on, you know, things that you put in place, the rituals that you make happen every day. And if we decide when and where we're going to do something, it increases the chance that we do it by 300%. Wow. So, um, you know, it does really pay to, to be intentional about it. Otherwise, it can drift. Absolutely, mate. Again, agree aggressively. I'll leave it there. I um, appreciate I know you're a busy man. I really appreciate you carving out the time to connect with us today. So much value, you know, lots to unpack. I'll put some of the things we spoke about in the show notes. Um, but I really appreciate it. I know the people listening and watching will get tons of value too, Graham. So um, keep doing the great work you're doing. And uh, who knows, maybe in a when, when things clear up from a COVID perspective, I might find my way in Sydney. You could be down here in Melbourne. We can meet in person for a coffee and, and share some more ideas. That'd be great, Liam. I'd really like to do that. Thanks again for listening to this episode. If you did enjoy it, if you got some sort of value from the episode, please do us a favor and subscribe to the channel. We've got lots more to come and share it with your friends and family. It all helps our mission of raising a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So please share the podcast and I look forward to sharing more with you on another episode.